April 4th marked 50 years since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It's kind of hard to believe that that much time has gone by. And I was uh, a proud Southern Baptist this week because uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission that's uh, chaired by Dr. Russell Moore partnered with the Gospel Coalition to host a national conference in Memphis, which was the the place where King was assassinated, honoring Dr. King's life and legacy, and calling the church in America to carry on his labor for racial harmony and reconciliation. And as a Southern Baptist, and the ERLC being a Southern Baptist organization, and Dr. Moore being a prominent voice for Southern Baptist life in our uh, nation, I was very uh, pleased by, uh, by what I saw. Um, the conference was streamed online, and I was able to see some of it. I'm planning to go back and watch uh, some things that I didn't get to see, but, uh, but what I saw was, was beautiful and challenging and uh, just very good, gospel-rich um, encouragement and exhortation to the church to continue to care about the things, not just that Dr. King cared about, but the things that Jesus himself cares about. There's no denying that there's been progress made when it comes to racial, race relations and racial harmony and things uh, of that nature. There's been progress made, both like legally and culturally uh, and within the church. Uh, within the, the broader kind of cultural landscape of things, obviously we've seen the abolition of slavery, which was a horrendous evil. Uh, we've seen the end of the Jim Crow laws that perpetuated segregation uh, and racism in the South. Uh, even up until the middle of the 20th century. Um, a few years ago, we saw the election of the first African-American president of the United States, which, think what you will about President Obama and his policies, that's a big deal and worth celebrating that we've come to the place as a nation where we can uh, elect a, a black man to serve in the Oval Office. And so there's definitely been progress made uh, in those terms. And in the church... That is, Christians in America, there's been progress because for too long, the church was on the wrong side of these issues. And I don't just mean the wrong side of history, I mean the wrong side of the kingdom of God. Christian leaders shamefully used Bible verses ripped from their context and, their, and stripped of their intended meaning to support the uh, owning of slaves and, uh, and, and the carrying on of J- Jim Crow era segregation and things like that. But largely, the church has shifted on those matters, in no small part because of Dr. King's influence and the influence of other faithful ministers and prophetic voices who are willing to speak uh, to God's people a strong word of rebuke uh, and exhortation. And so we've seen progress, praise God. But I also don't think many people would argue with me that there's room to grow There's room for growth, both legally and culturally, like just looking at the landscape around us. There's no question that there are still questions and uh, things that rage regarding systemic racial injustice. There's no shortage of racial pride and hatred. The laws of Jim Crow have been eliminated, but the spirit of Jim Crow is still alive and kicking, as we've seen um, often. And even in these last couple of years, in the kind of political climate that we're in, some of those voices have gotten louder and more obnoxious 
in our culture. So where there might have been a time where, where those of us who are privileged to not have to think about race, so to speak, could be like, oh yeah, we dealt with that. It's a thing of the past. We don't have that luxury. We're at least, we don't have the excuse anymore of remaining blind to what's going on around us. There's injustice and hatred all over the place. And, not just culturally and legally, but in the church. Because again, this is, where, this is what I care the most about. This is what the Lord would have the uh, strongest words for the church. Sunday morning remains, as Dr. King observed, the most segregated hour uh, in the week in America. Here's uh, a direct quote from Dr. King in an interview he gave. I think it is one of the shameful tragedies of our nation that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hour in Christian America. I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it fails to be a true witness. Now obviously, times have changed, laws have changed enough to know that we're not talking about necessarily a church having a formal policy of segregation. I don't really know of any churches still doing that, although they may be around and certainly opposed to the gospel of Jesus in that way. So there might be churches that have that formal policy, but for the most part, I think we're beyond that. We've gone, yeah, that's not right. We shouldn't like force people in or out or that kind of thing. However, practically, in the way this actually looks in most of our churches, it doesn't look like that much has changed. There's still, people still tend to divide around those boundaries of what makes us unique or what we're comfortable with. Birds of a feather flock together, and that still tends to be a reality even in the church in 2018. I think that our vision of God's kingdom is often far too small and sometimes painfully self-centered. The call of Christ in the gospel is to an unimaginably great and beautiful vision of a recreated, unified humanity under His rule. Indeed, reigning with Him. That's really where all this is headed, that we are going to be joint heirs with Christ composed of every kind of people on the earth. You might have heard people sort of suggest a, a colorblind kind of an ethic. Well, we should just not even see race and the differences between us. We should just be totally blind to those things. But I think the kingdom of God is calling us to more than mere colorblindness. As D.J. Jordan says, if Jesus wanted us to be colorblind, He would have made us the same color. I think there's a reason that we're different. We're different on purpose. No, the kingdom of God is purposefully, eternally, wonderfully colorful. There's no real reason beyond pride and selfishness that we have to wait for eternity to enjoy the fruit of this colorful kingdom. You read Revelation and you see that it all ends with this great multitude surrounding the throne made up of every nation and tribe and language. Right? You can see that. But I think sometimes we're okay going, well, yeah, that's how it's going to be one day in the future, but I'm just going to stick with what I, what's comfortable to me right now and trust that that's where all this is headed. 
But just like Trillia said in her book that I read to the kids earlier, we don't have to wait until then to enjoy God's family as he intended it to be in the here and now. So if you'll indulge me just a little bit, I'd like to walk you through the Bible with our eye on the nations, our eye on the diversity of the people that God is creating for himself and intended to create for himself from the start. And I, I hope that when we come out the other side of this, this walk through Scripture, we will be convinced, more convinced than ever, that the, the diversity and the, the distinctness and, and the, the colorfulness of the people of God is His heart and has always been His heart. And therefore, it should be our heart too. And we should do everything we can as His people to represent that value. So we're going to start at the very beginning. The first thing that we see is the root of the nations, if you will, in the image of God. You're familiar with these verses. It's not going to be new to you probably, but Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 tell us God is having a conversation with Himself and He says, Let us make man in our image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So in Adam, all humanity is united in one race. The human race. So in a manner of speaking, there's only one race. We're all a part of the same race, the human race. Every human being of every stripe and culture and language and geography and everything else comes from this same tree, the same family tree from Adam and Eve, where God made Adam and Eve in His image to bear His likeness. And He gave them dominion. He says, rule over the earth, take care of it, fill it. Fill the earth and subdue it, is the language He uses there in Genesis Chapter 1. And so every human being, because we all come from this same tree, bears the unique imprint of God's nature, of God's likeness on his soul. Every human being is made in the image of God. James 3 tells us uh, later in the New Testament, applies the same category of image of God to all people. We're speaking about our use of words and how our words can tear each other down or build each other up. And he says, don't tear down a human being with your words who is made in the image of God. Every human being has that, uh, that um, glorious and dignified and noble attribute that they are made in God's image. No matter how muted it is, no matter how much it's covered up by sin and brokenness and rebellion, because we all do that. The, the image is muted in all of us to some degree. Every human being is made in God's image. This surely affects how we treat people, how we view people, how we protect and defend people. People that are oppressed, people that are uh, treated unjustly, people who are targeted for uh, hatred or extermination, we should defend them. We should be 
But we should have a deep instinct to protect and to stand up for them. We should be willing to listen and to learn from people who are different than us because they bear the image of God just like we do. Russell Moore says uh, about questions related to human dignity and uh, things along these lines. He said, these questions are not simply about equipping Christians to do the right thing in the arenas of statecraft and public culture. A Christianity that doesn't prophetically speak for human dignity is a Christianity that has lost anything distinctive to say. The gospel is, after all, grounded in the uniqueness of humanity in creation, redemption, and consummation. Behind the questions of whether we should abort babies, or torture prisoners, or harass immigrants, or buy slaves, is a larger question. Who is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If Jesus shares humanity with us, and if the goal of the kingdom is humanity in Christ, then life must matter to the church. The church must proclaim in its teaching and embody in its practices love and justice for those the outside world would wish to silence or to kill. And the mission of the church must be to proclaim everlasting life and to work to honor every life made in the image of God, whether inside or outside the people of God. So obviously there's an inside the church uh, aspect of this call, and of, of this mission. But we ought to care about people outside the church too because of these questions of human dignity and the, the kingdom of Christ. So in the creation of human beings as bearing the image of God, we see the root of the nations, where they're all going to spring from. We'll see the emergence of the nations in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. If you're inclined to follow along and flip around the Bible with me, you're welcome to do that. Genesis chapter 11, we get this very interesting story of people coming together, and it tells us that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, a reminder of God's command to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, this is after the flood of Noah, and he said the same thing to Noah and his family who survived the flood. He said in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God intends for people to spread. He intends for humanity to disperse, but the people in Genesis 11 are working against that goal and saying, well, let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves so that we don't have to get dispersed around the earth. Now, we should point out the pride, the arrogance, and narcissism inherent in such a statement. Let's build a tower that reaches the heavens and make a name for ourselves. That's what they're interested in, right? We want to be great. We want to be impressive. In other words, we don't want to spread out like God wants. We want to congregate among ourselves and make ourselves great. We want to flock together with people who are just like us. Does that sound familiar? 
Is that inclination maybe still hiding in the human heart? I think maybe it is. But God has a different plan in mind. One that includes a varied and diverse humanity united by faith in Christ. We'll come to that in a minute. And so, verses 6 and 7, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then, what's the result of that going to be? From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Because they couldn't understand each other. They had to figure out, are there people that talk like me? Are there people that I can understand that we can maybe settle somewhere else together and build a community there? Right. So people have to disperse because God gives them different languages. That's on purpose. That's God's doing. The diversity among humanity that we begin to see emerge and that you can look very plainly around the globe now and see all the different languages and cultures and, uh, and, the way, and ways of life. God started that in Genesis 11 by confusing their languages and causing them to disperse around the globe. He's up to something. He has something in mind. He intends a unified, diverse humanity in the kingdom of God. The very next chapter in Genesis 11 takes us to, introduces us to a man named Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham. And we see in God's dealings with Abram, his intention to bless the nations through Abraham. He, he calls to Abram in, verse, uh, in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I want to point out two things. In contrast to the folks in Genesis 11 who are going to build a tower to make a name for ourselves, God comes to Abraham and he says, I will make your name great. Greatness is in view, both on the part of the Tower of Babel people and in God's mind as he comes to Abraham. But the greatness has a very different purpose. The Tower of Babel builders said we want to be great so that we can stay put and remain the same and be impressive. And God says, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. Why? So that you can be a blessing to all the nations so that all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. And of course we know, as we follow the story of Abraham, that the blessing that's going to come to the nations through his family will be none other than Jesus Christ. The Messiah will come through Abraham's family and bring life and healing to all the families of the earth. Every tribe, every nation, every people group. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we began, even in Genesis, to get a glimpse of what God is, is doing. He's at work confusing language and dispersing people so that these, this diversity begins to emerge. And then he's promising Abraham there's going to be 
uh, through you, through the coming of the Christ, Jesus Himself, through your family, a blessing will go out to all the nations, all the families of the earth. Well, when we get to the New Testament and we walk with Jesus through His life and ministry and He goes to the cross to take sins uh, upon Himself that were not His own, but ours. And He rose again from the dead, defeating the grave and securing eternal life for anyone who will just rest their lives in Him by faith. As He's about to return to heaven, in the book of Matthew, actually He does this in all the Gospels, but I'm going to read Matthew first. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, He's gathered His disciples together just before He ascends to heaven again. And He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that word nations is the Greek word ethne. And it means people group. It means ethnicity. That's where we get the word ethnic or ethnicity from. It's from the Greek ethne. So when you see nations, that's the word behind it. So just make disciples of all, not just geographical locations, but every kind of people. Every diverse and distinct nationality, ethnicity, language, culture kind of people make disciples. And so Jesus has in His mind, as He sends His disciples out into the world, go and find them all. In Mark 16.15, in Mark's version, if you will, or His report of Jesus' commission to the disciples, He tells them to proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. So, very broadly, everywhere. Luke 24.47, Jesus says to them uh, to pro- that, pro- that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all ethne, that same word, to all nations. In Acts, the story of how the church begins to spread and the gospel begins to grow throughout the known world at the time, it begins with Jesus once again speaking to His disciples before He ascends to heaven. And He tells them in Acts 1, uh, 1, 7, and 8, actually, excuse me, one of His disciples asked Him in verse 7, Lord, is this the time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? So they're thinking, all right, You've died, you've raised, death is defeated, it's all done. So, time to reign in Jerusalem, right? Earthly kingdom, Israel at the top of the food chain again, right? This is, this is the time, right? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. Ah, we hate that answer. Why does He got to say that to us? It's not for you to know. Because we usually want to know, right? God, why? God, when? God, what are you doing? Not for you to know. However, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, Jerusalem. That's what we wanted. We wanted the kingdom to come back to Jerusalem. And in Judea, wait a minute, and Samaria, what? And even to the ends of the earth. Oh, okay. This is a little different than what we had in mind, Jesus. We're looking for the kingdom to come right here so we can camp out, build the tower, make our name great. Genesis 11. 
And Jesus says, no, no, no. Genesis 12 is still going on. This is not about you building a tower and making your name great in Jerusalem. This is about the Gospel going out to all the nations. So you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. Absolutely. But you're going to go farther than that. Or the whole region of Judea. And even further north to Samaria. Even those people that you don't like very much. That you think are kind of like dirty and smelly and half-breeds. And like you have all this animosity toward them. You're going to go be my witnesses there too. Oh, and, and yeah, through the ends of the earth. As far as the globe goes, you go with the Gospel. Why? Because Jesus is building a kingdom of people for Himself that is much bigger than any one geographical location or any one ethnicity or any one language or any one culture or any one way of life. It's much bigger and more colorful than that. So that's the commission that Jesus gives to the disciples. That's the commission that comes down to us. Because the next part of the story hasn't happened yet where Jesus comes back and ushers in His final kingdom. So we got the same marching orders that the disciples had. Take the Gospel to all ethnic, to all nations, to all peoples. Reminded of Jesus' words in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. Right? So we're gathering the sheep of God from every tribe and nation and language. So in the Great Commission, we see the call to disciple the nations, to make disciples of the nations. And if you were to continue in the letters in the New Testament, you'd come to the book of Ephesians. I might invite you to turn there with me. We'll be here for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. And we find very poignantly and powerfully expressed that the Gospel itself, the good news of new life in Jesus Christ by faith, has at its core this idea of unity among the nations. The barriers being removed. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's speaking to Gentiles because they don't follow the Jewish rite of circumcision. And the Jews have this kind of They're the uncircumcised. It's kind of derisive way to speak about them, right? He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You weren't a part of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, uh, under the old covenant, the people of God. You were just, you, you you were excluded. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is a temple. The church is a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking here most pointedly to Jews and Gentiles, the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people who have been included in this household of God, in this community of faith. And he's urging the Jews to open the door wide enough to, bring, to welcome them in. And he's telling the Gentiles, don't let anybody keep you out. Jesus has removed those barriers. He's knocked down that dividing wall so that you and the Jews together are being built into this temple of God, a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So the point of these verses is that a saving relationship with God is no longer confined to Israel, no longer confined to Hebrew identity. And that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, which is all of us, have been included in the invitation to the new covenant. Right? That's the point of the verses. But an implication of the verses, something we can draw out from it, an implication of this truth is that there are no ethnic dividing lines in God's kingdom. They don't exist. The hostility has been killed by Jesus' work on the cross. There is no national or cultural barrier to a person's relationship with God and with the covenant community. So it's not, just an, it's not enough to say people of all kinds can have a relationship with God, but you go over there and have your relationship with God there, and you go over here and have your relationship with God there, and I'll stay here with people like me and have my relationship with God here. That's not enough. All of those dividing walls, the things that keep us apart, have been Erase. They're false categories. They're false distinctions at this point in terms of the gospel. And so, the church is a new humanity that God is creating for Himself in Jesus Christ. And the different ethne, the different nations who come to the Father through faith in Jesus are built together into a holy temple where God will dwell. And I think that means not just theoretically together like we're going in the same direction, but in life and relationship and covenant, we should be together. There's a unity there among the diversity that is in the heart of God and the Gospel. It's not even a temple if anyone gets left out. The way Paul explains it here, both of us are being built together into a holy temple. It takes both. It takes Jew, Gentile. It takes every stripe of Christian to build this temple together for the dwelling place of God. If anyone gets left out, you meet over there, you do your thing that direction, leave me over here. Not a temple. God doesn't promise to live there. There's got to be a togetherness. If the hostility is dead and the barriers are destroyed, that's the only way that this temple will grow. So I think that that brings some questions to us. What barriers are we allowing to stand in the way of realizing God's dream of a colorful community? What dividing walls might there be? Fear? Prejudice? Ignorance? Just don't know what we don't know. 
haven't really given it any thought. Apathy? Yeah, I heard enough about that, I don't really care. I think Jesus wants to destroy the barriers, whatever they are. And I think he wants to build a colorful kingdom expression in the local church. So the gospel is all about, or or carries out, or implies the unity among the nations, if you will. And finally, we're going to skip to the end of the Bible now. The kingdom of God in its final and eternal form is a gloriously diverse picture. In Revelation chapter 5, John has this vision of the throne room in heaven. And he says that all these people that he sees in heaven, the creatures and the saints and the elders, and there's lots of symbolism going on in Revelation, so you don't have to try to sort all that out right now. But he says, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're singing to Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory, and might, forever and ever. That's the picture of heaven. That's the eternal kingdom of God, and it is more colorful than you could possibly imagine. It is filled with people from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation who have become a kingdom and priests to God, and they're reigning with Him together. In chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's no getting around that, there's no denying. The kingdom of God in its final and eternal state is wonderfully diverse and colorful. But the diversity, the differences, the things that so often in our world, in our fallen humanity, divide us and keep us apart, no longer divide. The differences are still there, but they don't divide us anymore. So from start to finish, you can see that God is at work creating for Himself a people comprised from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth. All the ethne, all the people groups are a part of this covenant community. So I think it's plain enough to see that that's on God's heart. And I think it's easy enough for us to especially look forward to heaven and see this, you know, this great vision of diversity there. 
But I think there's a danger for double-mindedness, a kind of a hypocrisy for us here, where we might hear a message like this and nod our heads in affirmation and maybe even utter an amen here and there. But as long as the tr- when the truths that we're affirming come outside the realm of theory and actually have to meet us where we live and affect our relationships and our time and our words and our values, it gets a little bit harder. Many times it's the very same Christians who say the kingdom of God is for everyone who get on social media and loudly voice their disdain for peaceful protests by racial minorities. Not the time, not the place. What is the time and place? Or who argue vehemently against any suggestion of the mere existence of systemic racial injustice. It's made up, it's not real. Or who bemoan the fact that all these low-income families are infiltrating our schools or housing developments. We can in one breath go, yes, the kingdom of God is for everyone. That's awesome. I love that vision of heaven and the throne room where there's people from every tribe and nation. And then the very next sentence cast dispersion and hatred and prejudice on those who are not like us. Now I recognize, of course, that in all those situations we're speaking of issues that lie outside the core truths of the gospel. Right? We're not, and we're dealing in many cases with people who don't profess faith in Christ. So there, it is a, there's a distinction to be made there whether we're talking about including people in the church and how we approach social you know, and political kinds of issues. But the two are not mutually exclusive. If the gospel doesn't have things to say to our social and political and cultural climate, then we've not really grasped the gospel. Surely a God-breathed vision for cultural and racial diversity in the kingdom and in our churches should infuse us with a deep-seated compassion and an honest interest in the lives and experiences of people who are different than us. A colorful vision of God's kingdom should lead us into situations, relationships, and conversations that are uncomfortable to us, new to us, difficult for us maybe. We should be willing to humble ourselves and to listen and to learn and to admit we don't know what we don't know. But we're not okay staying there. We want to grow. We want to learn. John Piper said in an article uh, about race and the church, he said, it's inconceivable to me that a Christian can have a Christ-exalting love for diversity in the church and be hostile toward diversity in the nation." The knee-jerk hostilities I see betray, it seems, a very thin veneer of politically correct tolerance of diversity instead of a deep, biblically grounded, cross-centered exuberance over God's plan to reconcile all nations in Christ. I think we all have something to learn here. I think we all have room to grow. And I'll just say plainly, my, my desire, my heart, my dream for imprint is that we would embody this sort of diverse, colorful kingdom of God. I would love for us to grow in this way. And I hope you'll join me in praying and laboring to that end. It makes sense if you live in a neighborhood that like, there's only white people there for you to have a predominantly white church, but that's not where we live. It's not the case where we are. So we, we can do more. 
we can expand our vision. We can expand our hearts. Plead with God to expand our hearts in this way. We can humble ourselves and ask hard questions and be willing to listen and learn and grow. And I think if we're willing to do that, I can't promise you what's going to happen or what things are going to look like in a year or five years or ten years. I have no idea. But I do know that that kind of cross-bearing, self-humbling, others-oriented pursuit and living pleases the heart of our Savior who died to purchase for Himself people from every tribe and nation and language of the earth for His colorful kingdom. Let's pray.